Please turn your attention to Judges chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 31. Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 31. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. When they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Homs. Then the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, and the, ben- the, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. When reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. They saw their lord fall into the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you promised to meet us in your word and speak through it. Lord, we invite you to do that this morning. We pray that you would speak a word in season to each of us. Open our ears and our hearts. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought the sermon title this morning might pique a few people's interest. The left-handed judge and the very fat king. It sounds a bit like an Aesop's fable. The boy who cried wolf. 
the tortoise and the hare, the bald man and the fly, the left-handed judge and the very fat king. See, it sounds just like an Aesop's fable. And it's interesting because a lot of people read the Old Testament stories like this, essentially like an Aesop's fable, like a standalone moral tale. David and Goliath, be courageous like David. Noah and the ark, be obedient like Noah. Joshua and the walls of Jericho, don't back down from the impossible challenges in your life. The problem, however, with reading the Old Testament this way is the story before us. How do you draw a moral from the story of a left-handed judge and a very fat king? If you tried, what would that moral be? It's okay to be a lefty? Dare to be an assassin for God? Don't be greedy like the fat king? When you are alone, that's when the foul play happens. It's difficult, you see, to find role models in this story, and we ask ourselves, what is a story like this doing in the Bible? Of course, to see that, you can't just read it as a standalone moral tale. You have to see it in the context of redemptive history, in the context of the Bible, in the context of Judges. In the context of this book, this story is an example of the downward spiritual cycle in Israel that takes place between the time of Joshua and the time of the monarchy. It's a time in Israel when there is no king and everyone does as they see fit. And the last two passages in Judges, the introduction to this book, introduced us to the spiritual cycle that takes place in Israel. The people do evil and they serve other gods. Talked about this last week. In judgment, God turns his people over to their enemies who oppress them. The people then fall into distress and misery in this slavery, and they cry out to God for mercy. And God hears, and he rescues them by sending a judge, and the land has peace. And then the cycle repeats over and over again. The people fall into uh, uh, idolatry again and, and start serving other gods. Idolatry, judgment, grace. Idolatry, judgment, grace goes the cycle over and over again. Judges 1 and 2 are like the roadmap to this book. And then in chapters 3 to 16, we're given illustrations of this cycle with real people and real places and real events. First two illustrations this morning are Othniel and Ehud, the left-handed judge. And the big idea that I don't want you to miss in the midst of all the details is this. God delivers his people from oppression. God delivers his people from oppression. The stories of, Ethe, of Othniel and Ehud, I think, show us three things about God's deliverance. First, why we need deliverance. Secondly, how God delivers his people. And third, what his deliverance looks like. So there's a why, there's a how, and there is a what. First, why we need deliverance. Look at why the Israelites need deliverance, verses 7 and 8. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. And so the downward spiritual cycle begins. Israel forgets God and all he's done for them. They turn to other gods. And God's judgment is not a thunderbolt from heaven. The judgment of God is to pull back and to turn his people over to the gods they have chosen, to give his people what they want. In our passage, that takes the form of two evil kings. Verse 8, we're told that God sells his people into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, who is a very evil king. His name literally means 
cushion of double wickedness. Now, it's very likely his parents didn't give him that name. You don't give your child a name like that. This, this was a name given to him by his victims, by those who were enslaved by him. They, they, they called him cushion of double wickedness. This was his character. He was a doubly wicked man. And the Israelites, no surprise, suffer under him for eight years until they cry out to God for mercy. Then in the next cycle, the Israelites do evil in the eyes of God again. And in verse 12, God gives them this time over to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now again, he's characterized, verse 17, as being a very fat man. But don't mistake him for being a bulky buffoon or a corpulent clown. We might be tempted to dismiss him that way. But, but he's a, actually a politically savvy man. He gets the Ammonites and Amalekites to join his side. He is militarily shrewd. He attacks Israel and retakes the city of Palms, which was Jericho, the first great victory of Israel. This is a humiliating defeat when, when Eglon takes back Jericho. This king of Moab, Eglon, subjugates Israel for 18 years and levies on the people heavy taxes and tributes, making them cry out again to God for mercy. My friends, I think this, these two kings are a picture of the folly of idolatry. It is ironic that the very gods that Israel chooses to serve end up enslaving them. God warns them that this is going to happen. He says, if you turn away to other gods, they will become a snare and a thorn to you. What is a thorn? It's something that, that, that creates misery in your life. What is a snare? It's something that entraps and enslaves you. And what happens here, this is what, the, what idols and other gods do. They enslave us. They make us miserable like these evil kings do for Israel. I don't think we're always fully convinced of the folly of idolatry. Maybe he's like, okay, I, I know it's not quite right. But are we convinced of the foolishness and folly of idolatry? See, I think we, we look at other gods that we invite into our lives, money and power and beauty and success, and they seem awfully attractive. Like, I worship God, but I also worship these other things because they promise so much life. But until we see how other gods enslave us and make us miserable, we won't recognize our need for deliverance. I have a friend named Sam Chan, and he wrote this in his life story. He says this, I'm a firstborn Asian son. I was always a high achiever. In primary school, I was the annoying king who, a kid who asked the teacher for more work. In high school, I would get 99% in an exam and fixate on the one mark that was missing. When my friends were busy partying, I was busy studying. I wanted to get into medicine, and I achieved that in the top 1% of the state. Along the way, it wasn't only important that I succeeded, but that other people saw my success. But here's the problem, Sam says with being a high achiever. You're only ever as good as your last success. It can make you proud as well as insecure at the same time. There's always another mountain to climb, another exam, another assessment. He says, once I had become a doctor, it still wasn't enough. I needed to become a surgeon to be seen as somebody in the medical community and in my own eyes. And here's the other thing he says, you remember your failures more than your successes. For example, I must have attended over 100 hospital ward rounds. But there's only one ward round that I remember. The consultant put up the x-ray of the hip I had operated on, and the screws and plates had been put in the wrong places. 
So I think Sam, my friend Sam, gives evidence of this reality. When you make achievement your God, it will end up enslaving you because you never achieve enough. In a Vanity Fair article in 1991, Madonna said this, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting, again and again. My drive in life is from the, this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Again, when you make success your God, it will end up enslaving you because you'll never be successful enough. It's the dynamic of serving other gods. They promise such life and happiness, but like Eglon, they require tributes over and over and over again. You have to pay tributes to your God, and it's never enough. They're never satisfied. So even David Foster Wallace, who's not a Christian, Recognize this dynamic when he wrote this. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grave you. Worship power and you end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fears. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud. Always on the verge of being found out. See, my friends, any other God we worship, money, material things, beauty, health, cars, sports, they will end up enslaving us and making us feel anxious and miserable. And sometimes we only see this when God hands us over to our idols and lets us experience the folly and misery of serving other gods. I think what he's doing when he allows us to go and follow our own hearts and serve other gods, he's unmasking the idols for us. He's allowing us to experience the misery and folly of idolatry, to realize that these other gods will never deliver us. They make terrible masters because they show us no mercy. Tribute, and more tribute is required. I wonder if you've experienced this. This is why we need deliverance, because we are enslaved to other gods, and we can't rescue ourselves. Since secondly... How does God deliver? When the Israelites cry out in suffering, enslaved by the very gods they chose to serve, God shows them grace and mercy. It's not even clear repentance on their part, necessarily. They just cry out in distress. They're really hurting. They're suffering. They cry out. And God hears it and raises up a deliverer. And I want to look at these two deliverers that God raised up, Othniel first, and then Ehud. Othniel is introduced in Judges 1 and introduced to us as a faithful Israelite. He is a man who believes in God's promises and takes possession of the land. When the other Israelites are marrying Canaanite women like God said they shouldn't do, Othniel marries an Israelite woman. And this positive picture of Othniel continues in Judges 3, our chapter. There are, I point out, no negative character traits reported about Othniel. He is, in this brief little vignette, filled by the Spirit. He obeys God. God gives him victory over his enemies. And he doesn't resort to deception or special vows or questionable alliances. He trusts God for the victory. 
He is, in essence, described as the ideal judge to rescue God's people. Ehud, this other judge we're considering, raises some questions for us in our mind. He is described in verse 15 as a left-handed judge, and of course that's a curious detail. Why are we told this detail? Literally, it says he is unable to use his right hand. So many commentators suggest that Ehud was actually paralyzed and disabled in his right hand. That's why he was a left-hander. Interestingly, he is known, his defining characteristic, is he's known more for what he can't do than for what he can. Which makes him a perfect choice to bring a tribute to Eglon because he presents a threat to no one. Unbeknownst to everyone around him, Ehud secretly makes a double-edged sword. It's a cubit long, which means it's a little over a foot, small enough to hide under his clothes, long enough to do some serious damage with one thrust. He straps it under his clothes on his right thigh, which no one expects because most right-handers hide their, their, their swords under the left side so they can pull it out quickly. Ehud goes to Moab with this advantage of surprise attack. One of my daughters is naturally a lefty. Tina is mad at me as all these years because when my daughter was young, I taught her to play sports righty. Because, like, for example, I didn't want to buy a lefty baseball glove, so I taught her to play sports righty. And she's upset at me because when you're a lefty in lacrosse, it's a hidden advantage because no one expects a left-handed shot. See, in the same way, Ehud has a hidden advantage as a lefty. He goes with this delegation to present a tribute to Eglon, who is a very fat man. Again, why are we given this detail? I think it's because this characterizes who he is. He was a man of great appetites and little restraint. Many of these tributes apparently were food, and he demanded a lot of tributes. He was known for his greed. So this, this delegation goes and presents the tribute, and after they are dismissed and sent on their way, Ehud goes back, and he says, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. Eglon, true to character, cannot resist. He dismisses all the attendants, and then Ehud captures this moment. He approaches him and says, I have a message for God from you. Eglon rises from his seat to receive this message, and Ehud proceeds forward with his left hand, draws his sword from his right thigh, and plunges it into the king's belly. One commentator describes it this way, Eglon quickly gets the point of God's message. We are given vivid details at this point. Even the handle of the sword sinks in. Ehud does not pull the sword out, and the fat closes in over the handle of the sword, and his bowels discharge. ESV says it literally, his dung came out. Ehud escapes, closes the door, and locks it behind him. So when Eglon's servants come and find the doors locked and smell this odious smell, they draw the logical conclusion. The king must be relieving himself. So they wait and wait. But when the king does not come out and is beyond the point of embarrassment, they get the key and open the door and discover their king dead on the floor, and Ehud is long gone. It's the story of Ehud, the left-handed judge. Now you know why the text tells us he's left-handed. It is a dramatic story with vivid details. And once we take it in, we start to have some questions. Like these. 
you know, how can God use a man like Ehud? He plots violence. He uses deception. And yet in verse 15, God gave Israel Ehud as a deliverer. Verse 28, God, the Lord has given Moab into your hands through Ehud. God is working through Ehud. So then the question is, does God condone Ehud's methods? And the text becomes ambiguous at this point. We come face to face with the inscrutability of God's ways. God sometimes uses flawed people to accomplish his purposes without condoning their flaws. We just need to reflect on ourselves for a moment to ask, does God use anyone but flawed people? This story is not just about a left-handed judge. I suggest to you the whole story is a bit left-handed, filled with surprises and unexpected and unlikely events. As we're saying, God accomplishes his redemption through unlikely people in unlikely ways. God uses a lot of left-handed things for his purposes, disabilities, weaknesses, defeats, failures. How does God deliver? Through a surprising, unlikely deliverer. Many of you know that I'm a big Chicago Bulls fan, having grown up in Chicago. During one of their seasons in that, those championship runs in the 90s, they went 72 and 10 on the season, which means they only lost 10 games all season. So what that meant is when the Chicago Bulls came to town that season, you knew what the outcome of the game was going to be. I mean, they were going to win. The only thing you didn't know was how Michael Jordan was going to beat you. Was he going to beat you by driving and dunking over you? Or was he going to beat you with an outside jumper? Or was he going to beat you with his assist to a supporting cast? And at the height of his powers, Michael Jordan, it seemed like, had a hundred ways he could beat you. When they interviewed one of his opponents in that era, the opponent said, the reason why we all watched Michael Jordan play is because otherwise you might miss him do something that you'd never seen before. In like manner, we know the outcome. God will deliver his people. He promises to do that. What we don't know is how he's going to do it. And he has a hundred ways he can deliver his people, and many times he uses the most surprising, unexpected, and unlikely means. For example, Abraham and Sarah, who don't have a son. God promises that they will have a son, and Sarah laughs in skepticism. Like, how can an old woman like me have a son? And yet God follows through in his promise, and he gives them a son when Abraham is 100 years old, and Sarah is 90 years old, way beyond childbearing age. And when God, they receive this son, Sarah laughs again, not in skepticism, but in wonder. And they name their son Isaac, which means laughter. My friends, God delivers his people in surprising, unexpected, and unlikely ways. And sometimes it makes us laugh in wonder. I want to point out there is a comic element to this story, especially in the way that it's told. The story of Ehud and the very fat king is told with the Hebrew word hina, which is usually translated behold. It is, appears in our account, in our story three times. Behold, the doors of the upper room were locked. Behold, he was still not coming out of the doors of the upper room. When they opened the doors, behold, there was the master on the ground. See, the Israelites hearing this story in the future would chuckle at the way that God rescued his people. How left-handed. How surprising, how unexpected. 
then it's no surprise that when God sends his ultimate judge to rescue his people, he also is surprising and unexpected. Not a mighty warrior, a baby born to two poor parents. No beauty or majesty that would attract us to him. Jesus Christ is that surprising, unexpected deliverer. Like Ehud, whose greatest weakness was his greatest strength, so with Jesus. He delivers his people by dying on a cross. My friends, God uses the weak, the foolish, the lowly. We should give hope to everybody in this room that God can use you for his redemptive purposes and me. How does God deliver his people? Through unlikely, surprising deliverers. We can't put God in a box. We can't count him out because he does so in wonderful ways. So then thirdly and lastly, what does this deliverance look like? When Othniel and Ehud um, accomplished God's deliverance, two things happen. Israel's enemies are defeated and the land enjoys peace and rest. And I would suggest to you that this is a preview of the greater deliverance, the ultimate judge, Jesus Christ, who likewise defeats our enemies, not flesh and blood enemies, but the spiritual forces of evil, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Colossians 2.15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. And he is also the divine warrior of Revelation 19, riding on a white horse. And he will defeat Satan once and for all and throw him into the lake of fire. And then... He will establish peace in the new heavens and the new earth. The wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Jesus establishes peace in the new heavens and the new earth. Not just the absence of war, but shalom. Human flourishing and delight. A peace which lasts not only decades, like in the book of Judges, but for eternity. Because our Savior, Jesus Christ, lives forever. Jesus gives us a little taste of this peace in the present. Remember in the Gospels, after Jesus calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee with a word from his mouth, peace be still, he meets up a, with a demoniac who has a storm on the inside. So fierce that no one can control this man. So fierce that he can't even control himself. And Jesus calms the inner storm of this man and brings him peace. And that account in Mark 5 ends with this man at peace, sitting clothed in his right mind. What does the deliverance of Jesus look like? Our enemies are defeated and we experience peace and rest. Back to my friend Sam. His struggle with achievement all came to a head some years ago. He says, I had a good job in medicine. I was successful, but I had to make a decision. Should I continue to work in full-time medicine, which was the perfect job in the eyes of Asians, or go into ministry, telling people about Jesus? He says, not only was medicine the perfect job in the eyes of Asians, it also paid the bills. It's the kind of profession that gets you extra points in conversations at dinner parties or when you go and see the bank manager. Everyone sees you as successful or as somebody as a high achiever. 
Sam says, I struggled, but it was a turning point for me. I came to know in my heart that if I put my trust in Jesus as Lord, I wasn't just trusting that he would save me from my sins and get me to heaven, but it was his achievements that made me somebody. All my achievements were actually worth nothing compared to what he had done for me. I, don't, I didn't need them anymore. I didn't need to be a doctor anymore or to see myself as perfect or for others to see me as perfect. Instead, I had Jesus. I could be humble and secure. I could trust that Jesus had achieved everything for me that I could ever possibly want or need. In his eyes, I was somebody. Sam then offers up this reflection. He says, Ever since I made that decision to give up medicine, my friends have noticed a change in me. My former roommate noticed that I don't drive like an idiot anymore. I don't try and dominate the conversation at dinner parties anymore. In other words, I didn't realize it before, but being a high achiever was not only a curse to myself, it was a curse to my friends as well. It's all coming out of my insecurity. But since that time when I fully surrendered my life to Jesus, I have been truly secure. I don't need success anymore to be happy. My friends, Jesus can deliver us from our idols and bring peace and rest. It doesn't mean that we have to give up our jobs. It means we have to come to Jesus. I wonder if you sit here this morning gripped by anxiety and the misery of serving other gods because they never stop demanding tribute from us and they're never satisfied. And they keep driving us deeper and deeper into a life of slavery. I wonder if we recognize our need for deliverance. See, these other gods cannot be removed. They must be replaced by a greater deliverer. And God has raised up that greater deliverer in Jesus Christ. Perhaps the one you didn't expect. But he can deliver us from our enemies and bring us peace and rest. To experience his deliverance, we have to recognize our need for it and cry out to him in true repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending us Jesus Christ, our true deliverer. Would you help us to recognize how other gods enslave us and make us miserable? Help us turn to you and cry out for your grace and mercy which you've shown us in Jesus Christ that we might experience true peace and rest. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.